Lawrence Summers previously served as Chief Economist of the World Bank, Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration, and Director of the National Economic Council in the Obama administration. He also served as President of Harvard University, where he is now a professor. Today, he discusses economic trends in the COVID-19 era. Let's listen in. I think uh, that most of what I'm going to talk about are things that I think um, were accelerated uh, by COVID. And I'll suggest them in a number of different spheres, and I'll try to be relatively brief so people can challenge what I said, or people can suggest other trends that were more important than the ones I've talked about uh, for uh, the group's uh, consideration. First, um, COVID will promote the secular stagnation, low neutral interest rates, and the associated financialization of the economy with attendant uh, financial risks. As many of you will know, I've been of the view for the last half dozen years that the private sector fundamentally generates more desire to defer consumption through saving for retirement, for inheritance, for rainy days, than the private sector generates attractive opportunities for that saving to be invested in, that that in the industrialized uh, world promotes low interest rates, weak demand and relatively sluggish performance, a strong tendency towards budget deficits to maintain demand in where it would otherwise uh, be weak, and the flowing of that saving and the associated low interest rates into very high levels of asset prices and uh, potential uh, instability. And so if the economic problem of a previous era was excess demand and inflation, the economic problem of the current era is excess savings that have difficulty being absorbed except in inflated asset uh, prices. It seems to me that uh, COVID will reinforce that. It will reinforce that by substantially increasing uncertainty, which will lead to lower uh, levels of business investment and leading to increased uncertainty, increased need for contingency planning, individual resilience, if you like, which will lead to more private saving. That means more neutral, lower still, uh, neutral interest rates and more of the events about which I just spoke. I think that the strength of asset prices very substantially reflects a reduced discount factor rather than increased expected uh, cash flows and that there is a general non-awareness that, that if a broadly diversified portfolio like a university endowment could once have been expected to generate a 5% return. Today, it can be expected to generate no more than a uh, 3% uh, return. Second uh, 
broad observation. Um, emphasis in the world, whether it's an individual's planning, whether it's a company's business strategy, or it's a country's national economic approach, is going to shift from emphasizing efficiency to emphasizing resilience. Whatever the merits of an approach based on any family, let me put it this way, any family that was trading off a luxurious timeshare or something of that broad kind with owning a house in a rural, beautiful place, anyone who is indifferent between those two options today, seeing how many of their friends have retreated to a rural house. I'm a small example, having uh, spent the last eight weeks in uh, Truro, Massachusetts. Anyone will tend a little more towards uh, the house uh, in a rural place. What is that? It's resilience rather than um, efficiency. It's just in case rather than just in time. It's exactly the same thing when a corporation decides to reduce the length of its supply chain. And maybe it is a little less efficient if we produce it ourselves in Ohio rather than if we import it from uh, China. We'll be able to sleep better at night knowing that our components will be there and our production will not be shut down for lack of a $100 uh, part. What about uh, countries? How comfortable are we with what kinds of foreign investment in our country, with what kinds of reliance? I'm a free trader. I'm a person who has tended always to believe that people making national security arguments for tariffs um, have their interests rather than the nation's interests more at heart. I still have that bias, but the spectacle of the United States receiving airlifts of Chinese masks, surely if I were in government today, I would be paying more attention to national security dependence issues than I did uh, when I was in uh, government. So second broad trend, every important actor is going to uh, be putting more emphasis on uh, resilience relative to efficiency uh, than uh, they did uh, than they did before. Third broad uh, trend, um, the balance of economic power is uh, moving to the east and is moving to the east uh, rapidly. Or maybe I should be saying, rather than the balance of economic power, perhaps I should be saying, <laughs> The theater of history is uh, 
moving uh, is uh, is moving east. The stunning and overwhelming uh, regularity that one is struck by if one looks at uh, the incidence per million, uh, fatalities per million people for different countries. By the way, I regard that as the single best indicator of how well a country has managed uh, the situation. Who knows what case counts mean? Obviously, you want to control for the size of uh, populations. And there are two striking things that enter in that I think one is struck by when one looks at those numbers. Uh, the first, which is not my primary point here, is that while Trump and the Trump administration seem epically and extraordinarily incompetent, it has to be acknowledged that the United States is, does not look particularly bad among Western industrial democracies. France is much worse. Sweden is much worse. Of course, uh, Italy and Spain are much worse. Countries that one would think of as sort of well-organized and competent, like the Netherlands and Belgium, are uh, much worse than the United States. And so it's not that we're having uniquely bad performance because of uniquely bad management. There's something deeper and beyond that going on. The other thing one is struck by is all the numbers in Asia are remarkably low. And maybe China is undercounting by a factor of three. And China almost certainly did terrible things um, at uh, the uh, beginning in terms of hiding uh, the problem. But it had been happening for a while that the economies of Asia were growing much faster than the economies of the West. We've now had a major challenge to governments protecting their people against a big problem. And everywhere in Asia, I'm exaggerating, but roughly everywhere in Asia has done roughly better than everywhere in the West. And that has to tell you something and has to augur something for the future. Whether China will continue to be strong, whether Xi Jinping will maintain his control, who knows? Uh, who knows exactly? But this is a big thing, I would suggest, in terms of uh, the configuration um, of. Uh, the world, uh, the world system. Fourth um, point, um, and it's a, um, it's a, it's, it's a global point uh, as well. We have thought for hundreds of hundreds of years. Some would say thousands of uh, years that the central problem of international relations was maintaining a balance of power that enabled uh, peace. And, you know, you heard about Henry Kissinger talking about uh, Metternich. You talked about the failure of balances of power as Germany grew before uh, 
First World War, you had theories of stability from uh, rivalry during uh, the Cold War. The successful maintenance of a balance of power equilibrium so that there was peace was in many ways the central question of international relations. If I ask what my children and what my grandchildren, when I have them, have to fear, I am not sure it is a failure of the balance of power rather than the failure to achieve minimum thresholds of cooperation. Minimum thresholds of cooperation globally with respect to terrorism, with respect to climate change, with respect to preserving economic and financial stability, and minimal thresholds with respect to pandemic. I think the return time to something like this event is more in expected value like 15 than like 50 years for a variety of technical reasons that I could go into. And so I think that a central part of policy is going to be finding hard-headed ways of achieving uh, cooperation. That doesn't mean gooey submission to UN-like agencies, but it does mean finding ways of having even the culturally and politically incompatible each do uh, their part to achieve cooperation. I think in that regard that the right metaphor for U.S. Um, Chinese relations is uh, two people who really don't like spending time uh, with each other and who don't trust each other in a lifeboat uh, that's not very big, in a turbulent sea, a long way from shore, that takes two to row. And that's the question, uh, really. And the legitimacy of our complaints, our capacity to inflict pain are relevant, but not, I would suggest, of uh, central importance. The last thing I would say, and again, these are all trends that I think have been uh, accelerated uh, by COVID, is for better or worse, the success of societies is going to depend more on achieving competent, strong governments relative to successfully staying out of the way of highly capitalist private sectors than it has uh, in the past. The way I would have talked about this before would have been to observe that um, if you look according to the consumer price index at two prices, the price of a television set and the price of a day in a hospital room or a year in a university. They're all normalized so that in 1983, by statistical convention, 
they're all 100. The price of a television set today is about five. The price of a day in a hospital room or a year in a university is about 600. So there has been a hundredfold, more than a hundredfold change in the relative price of uh, those two uh, those two goods. Why? It's because productivity growth is intrinsically possible on a massive scale with respect to a television set, and much less with respect to uh, drawing blood or uh, teaching a, a seminar on uh, Shakespeare. And then if you think about which of those activities gravitate to the public sector and which inherently remain in the private sector, it's obvious that the latter, health and education, disproportionately move to the public sector. The public sector, you know, somebody described the United States um, as being an old age insurance budget, as being an old age insurance program with an army attached. Um, and that's even more true in every other uh, Western, uh, Western country. Societies that are aging, societies that are becoming much more dependent on health and education, societies that are having more inequality that uh, has to be addressed if they are to uh, stay uh, together, are going to uh, be societies that are going to be more dependent on a public sector uh, to organize and drive things. And it doesn't matter whether you're a parliamentary system, you might be more conservative and think the size of government should go from federal government should go from 15 to 25 percent. You might be more progressive and think the the, uh, size should go from 25 to 35 percent. But I would submit that any rational person, whatever their values and basic judgments, should think that the public sector should be significantly enlarged relative to what they would have thought 10 years ago. And COVID, because of the inequalities that it has pointed up and because of the public responsibilities that it has uh, demonstrated, seems to me uh, to just uh, reinforce uh, all of that. Um, In every election year that I have observed closely, and there have now been about 12 of them, um, it has been pronounced that the issues the nation faces have never been more novel or more consequential. It might actually be true uh, this time. I think there's a real chance uh, that uh, it might be true. And it seems to me in the face of that, it would be folly to suppose that uh, wisdom resides um, in either extreme. Let me, uh, let me stop there. Thank you, Larry. Um, I've been sort of flipping here, looking at the, the chats that have been coming in and, and we'll have time for questions too, but 
I think uh, a number of the, the, the comments are around a couple of things that you addressed on the economic side, uh, maybe some public policy, and then some comments even on China and what's really happening there. I know we'll get some others and uh, people can also, uh, again, if you just comment, I'll see it or Liz will see it and we'll, we'll try to get to people directly. On the economic side, I think um, there's still, I think the underlying question, so basically you're saying low inflation, low interest rates is your prognostication for the foreseeable future. Uh, I know that's something we're all worried about because many of us are in the business world or in capital markets worlds. In terms of one question came in around, well, what does the resi- a, a trade system that is more focused on resilience as you characterize it, what does that mean for balance of trade? And do you have any thoughts on how that might sort out? Um, that's one area. And another area, well, why don't you consider that as a, a second one that's very different? I think it tends to mean less trade rather than having any strong implication for uh, the balance of, uh, for, the, for the balance of uh, trade. Uh, if, um, if we decide to produce more at home, we'll import less. And if others decide to produce more at home, we'll export less. I don't think there's any hugely strong prediction for a country like the United States that imports and exports in uh, very in substantial scale as to what will happen to the delta between uh, imports and exports. I think for a country that um, very substantially exports more than it imports, um, it's likely to be a more difficult period because they're likely to lose more uh, from their exports. So if the big trade surpluses go down, there'll be a tendency for everybody else's uh, trade deficits to go down a little bit since all the surpluses plus all the deficits have to sum to zero. But I would guess that the effects are going to be larger on the quantity of trade than they are going to be on uh, who's, a, who's a net exporter and, uh, who's, an, and who's a net importer. And, and, and an interesting paradigm might be the, the uh, textile industry over time, which was very China dependent 10 or 20 years ago, and has diversified over the years. I think also the issue of safety stocks and how you plan for different types of sourcing may find its way into other, other subsectors. I suspect a question I have not studied. Um, I suspect that the long-term trend towards lower inventory levels of all kinds may reverse itself a bit, or at least the trend may slow down in the name of increased resilience. You know, the United States right now has a petroleum reserve. It wouldn't amaze me if we started having strategic reserves of more things besides petroleum. So in general, I think in a world of low interest rates and high interruption risk from various sources, it's going to be a world of higher inventories. 
Um, also, I, I'm, I'm looking at some of the comments and then we'll open it up a bit. On the economic side, I think Hapstein asked that how do we pay for significant growth in government without increasing tax rates to where they become a disincentive? And do consumption taxes like uh, that and carbon tax make sense? There's another comment um, around um, you know, how, how other players in the system, I think uh, Stephen Sch uh, Schlenker talked about, uh, the, there's lots of other players there who might arbitrage out some of that, so it, it may require something else. And finally, something, Larry, that you and I have talked about over a long time is the wealth gap, which seems to um, recreate itself every decade, maybe with different people at the top based on uh, evolving industries. But the gap between people at the top and people at the bottom is a, uh, a tough political challenge, a public policy challenge. And you probably have some thoughts on that. So, look, I think we can raise a bunch more revenue without doing terrible things to uh, in, uh, terrible things to incentive. We could raise at least a hundred billion dollars collecting taxes that are owed but not paid by people with incomes above a million dollars a year. I'm not talking about collecting on tips. I'm uh, talking about various kinds of uh, larger scale um, uh, evasion. It's kind of outrageous that if you make uh, half a million dollars a year in the United States, you're less likely to be audited than if you're a recipient to the earned income tax credit who couldn't possibly make more than uh, 60,000. And it's kind of outrageous that enforcement activity relative to the tax base right now is only half of what it was in uh, 2010 and about 35% of what it was in uh, 1993. There are various things we could do that would go after various tax shelters that would divert uh, economic activity into more efficient uses from less efficient uses. I do not think it would be wise to have uh, federal marginal rates be substantially higher uh, than they are right now. But we could collect several trillion dollars over the next 10 years without a substantial increase in, uh, federal, uh, in federal marginal uh, rates. I think a wealth tax would be a serious mistake both in its incentive effects um, and given all the problems of administrability that it would pose. There's a reason why most of the countries in Europe that are more progressive than we are who had them have eliminated, uh, have eliminated them. But I think there's a middle of the road progressive revenue increasing strategy, which is the right, uh, which is the right thing um, going forward. I think we need to carefully need to um, carefully contemplate the uh, questions around inequality. Uh, I wish it were true, Brad, that the players in inequality changed quite as much from decade to decade as uh, yeah. as you as you suggest a uh, disproportionate share of the very rich are the children of uh, 
the very rich. And if anything, um, that tendency is uh, probably increasing yeah. for a whole variety of basically positive reasons. It didn't used to be that there were the kinds of enrichment activities for kids that um, there now are. Um, used to be nobody could do it. And everybody's kids went to public school and everybody's kids took the same standardized tests and had the same summer experiences. Uh, now there's much more that can be done to perpetuate inequality. And it's got a certain logic to it. It's also investing in merit. So I think it's very, uh, very complicated. It shouldn't be the case that if you live in a rich place, your kids get a better education. And that's something we could do a lot uh, to offset, and it would do a lot uh, to promote uh, equality of, uh, op uh, to promote uh, equality of opportunity. If more things were more in common, uh, it would be a fairer society. I actually think single-payer health insurance would be a serious mistake, but universal parental leave that somebody financed you for 13 weeks when you had a child or had an aging parent who you had to take care of, I think that would make us a more equal uh, society. So I think you just have to look uh, issue by issue and uh, there are places where you can can become uh, more equal without doing grave damage to incentives, and uh, that's what we should. That's what we should be uh, looking uh, for. I think uh, most of the answers, um, uh, many of the answers, uh, lie in the range that your group is interested in, uh, you know, the range between Mitt Romney and Bill Clinton, if I can put it that way, uh, rather than uh, out towards uh, Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders or um, Newt, Ging uh, Newt Gingrich and Donald Trump country. Yeah. Not all the answers lie in that central space, but I think many do. What one question on trade that came in is: Do um, it, given that the if there's going to be an emphasis on resiliency, will that help the new North American free trade agreements and structural? But more more important on this hemisphere, I think probably. I think one of the uh, the economics profession and the world of practice spent centuries refining concepts of comparative advantage and efficiency. And we haven't had nearly the kind of depth of thought around resilience that we've had around them. So it's early days. And one of the first questions about resilience is, you know, what, what do we mean by resilience? Do we mean that um, GM should uh, vertically integrate and buy Fisher Auto Body? Do we mean uh, that 
everything should be produced in the United States? Do we mean that everything that the United States should be more reliant on North America? I think in general, this is something that's going to play out at every level. Um, and I, but I suspect it does mean more emphasis on uh, North America among agreements because everything because anything closer to home feels more resi- feels uh, more resilient. Uh, I'm just looking at the list of people and um, and the the chats, and I think. Um, if you want to do quick, if you want to do quick answer, quick question, quick answer, I will. I will. Okay, apply. maybe Mike. Mike you want? Are you are you on? You had a couple questions. I think I don't know if they got answered. Yeah, somebody asked the question better than I did, and that was with all the money we're printing, uh, how can we avoid inflation? Um, except that it seems like the rest of the world is printing money too. I, I would I would think that would have some effect, but. I don't know. If everybody prints money, does that make it okay? I don't think the fact that everybody prints it makes it okay, but the fact that we pay interest on it makes a very big difference. In a in an old in, in an old world where money didn't pay interest, if you had money, it was costing you money to hold money, and therefore everybody tried to get rid of money. And so when you had a lot of money printed, you tended to be very inflationary. In today's world, Money isn't really very different from treasury bills because it pays interest, so you're not really costing you anything to hold money. And so proliferating large quantities of money doesn't have the same inflationary impact uh, that it once did. That doesn't mean that we couldn't make mistakes in the direction that led to inflation, but I think the Japanese experience where the money stock has been very, very, very high for very, very long is instructive in uh, calling into question the idea that money printing is necessarily uh, going to be inflationary. And I would look to have a somewhat different theory of uh, inflation that put more emphasis on the Phillips curve aspect and put more emphasis on expectations as a social convention. Thank you. And I think what I'm saying would be, what I'm saying would be the view of 75 or 80 percent, not 100 percent of the economics profession. There were a couple of questions on education. Uh, one was about consolidation in education with small colleges going out of maybe out of existence, and there was another one trying to see who that was. Uh, I apologize, there's so many here. Uh, I think that was Ken Sisciano. Ken, do you want to lead us on a little uh, discussion of education and consolidation and prospects? Uh, sure. Thanks, Brad. Um, and I'm uh, uh, a little bit from the point of view of I've got a son in, in college, but just generally, um, you know, just you're curious your view on on, on the, the expectation for the demand for, you know, expensive university educations now. Um, you know, uh, and also the, the issue of will college, will universities or colleges consolidate? Um, uh, and will the classroom be virtual? Will it, will it be, uh, sort of hybrid and, and what can students expect? Cause it's going to be, it seems to me it's going to be very different. And it was universities were more than just about education it was about the experience. So there are a lot of parts of that question. Um, 
let me say a few things. Uh, 75% of American college students never step in a dormitory. So the American college experience across the board is different than what I suspect the people on this call have in mind when they think of college. And I don't remember what fraction of Americans, America's 3,000 institutions of higher education are meaningfully exclusive, but it's not 10%. Um, and in terms of accepting and rejecting students. So I think generalizing about the American college education experience is probably a mistake uh, in, uh, in talking um, uh, in, t in talking about that, uh, I think, and frankly, I'm not proud of this, but I probably have some sense of how these issues play out in the context of elite institutions um, that are substantially exclusive more than I do of the general experience, you know. Another fact that should tell the people on this call that their intuitions maybe aren't going to be perfect are that only about 40% uh, of students who enter college graduate. And I don't think that's what people are thinking of as the likely experience of their children um, on, a call, uh, on a call like this. I think you will see, just because of the demography, some substantial shrinkage of uh, the higher education sector, and you'll see many small colleges uh, go out of uh, go out of business, and you will see more institutions that will be dependent on their ability to import foreign students for their economic viability, and depending upon what happens after COVID, that may be lost. So I think you will have um, an oddity with, so I think you will have substantial strains among the lower half in terms of academic distinction or lower two thirds of America's uh, several, thou several thousand uh, institutions. One of the puzzles or one of the interesting economic aspects of the higher education sector is that if you think about the best brands in higher education. I was privileged to preside over one for five years, Harvard, but there are other very good brands. If an institution in the corporate sector was half as successful as Harvard was in 1970, and it stayed successful, you would have expected it to have massively expanded relative to the scale at which it was operating in 1970. But institutions, the best institutions of higher education are, have some of the aspects of companies and some of the aspects of Augusta National, where they preserve their specialness from those to whom they do not, with whom they will not and do not, uh, uh, do not transact, and their very exclusivity. And so it's quite different from the intuitions that one would have. I think a huge question now is, what is going to happen 
with uh, distance education. This is, there is a massive opportunity for the leading brands to vastly spread their influence and vastly make money that can be reinvested in the process. What possible sense can it make that thousands of introductory calculus courses are taught across America every year by thousands of different people? Surely somebody supported by extensive visual aids, supported by having uh, great and impressive uh, skill, there should be a few introductory calculus models, which everybody watches and are then individual, and then there are various kinds of individual treatment to which people have access. The market for courses should be more like the market for textbooks, where there are extensively resourced um, investments and then there's a variety of complementary, much more individualized activity. Who will win in that space? I think it's very, very hard uh, to know. I would say that, to put it mildly, I have been underwhelmed by the efforts of the leading universities to seize that territory at a moment where it seems to me it should be seized for reasons that both involve maximizing social contribution and involve uh, the, the otherwise very challenging financial agencies to which those institutions are subject. Will it happen? Who knows? I hope that answered most of your questions. Yeah. There's a, f a few people, I might just, uh, the three people, and maybe if we, given the time, maybe each of them can ask a quick question and then you can address them, Larry. And Bill Galston, sure you know well, is asking about, isn't this the time for great public infrastructure building, which we can come to perhaps as a closing comment, something that No Labels has been involved with and Bill's been leading the charge for years. But I would call on Glenn Lowenstein, Joel Myers, and Robert Zadek to uh, maybe each ask a question and that Larry can then address in, um, in some final comments along with infrastructure. Uh, Larry Glenn Lowenstein, thank you very much for being here. I've followed your comments on secular stagnation for a number of years, and I'm wondering if COVID does anything to change your perspective. Why don't we do all three, and I'll answer them as a group. Uh, this is Bob Zaydi. Uh, Larry, uh, good afternoon. Uh, your comment on resilience, uh, resilience versus an extended supply chain, intrigued me, but it occurred to me or I have a question, are you suggesting more of a governmental policy and a sort of an industrial uh, motivation at the national level? Or isn't that a private decision for each company, some choosing to be a bit more riskier with higher returns and more efficiency and others opting for a more conservative management approach? Isn't it individual rather than uh, national? Okay, Joel Myers uh, here. Uh, my question is, you had mentioned uh, about how the cost of higher education and uh, hospital care 
had uh, risen so dramatically. But a lot of that rise, I think, was due to government involvement, not the opposite. And because of that, wouldn't the ultimate effect be just the opposite? Those high costs are going to attract competition and productivity and ingenuity to drive the cost down. And in fact, you gave an example of that, the algebra course or the, the basic English one or the basic chemistry course and all those things that ultimately will be the ideal course. And uh, so higher education will have to adapt to that, won't it? And, and then focus on other things they can bring to the table and the experience to educate uh, our sons and daughters. All right. Uh Four good, four good questions. Um, sec, I always, I always worry when I give an answer to a question that has the character of now more than ever, because um, it feels like maybe I haven't been intellectually flexible with respect to a new event. But having said that, my reaction on uh, COVID and secular stagnation is now more than ever. Um, essentially it reduces the propensity to invest and raises the propensity to save. And both of those operate in uh, the, both of those operate in the direction of reducing neutral interest rates, inducing, uh, inducing sluggishness, providing for more asset bubbles uh, and the like. Resilience, I actually think it has both pieces. You know, it's not an accident that people hated sitting next to smokers and governments passed laws banning smoking on airplanes at around the same time. And yes, I think a lot of resilience will be accomplished because individual companies will uh, want to be more resilient. But I think all of us as consumers want reliable supply chains and we're not able fully to cast that vote in the marketplace. So I think we will have more government emphasis on uh, resilience. Um, my own, maybe this shows that I'm fit for no labels. Uh, whenever I hear somebody starting out to say resilience and industrial policy, I wince and am skeptical. And whenever anybody says nothing's changed in traditional thinking about free trade, I think to myself, that dog's not going to hunt in the current political environment. And I, for one, would want to review what damage China could do, could do to us with export controls. And I think it's worth some national investment in robustness, even if that investment is not worth it uh, to every country. Um, on uh, the private sector, uh, I'm all for. I'm all for charter schools. I think there's a lot to be said for innovations like Coursera. I think that there have been some important successes in uh, for-profit uh, private higher education. I do not think it is remotely credible to suggest that the main reason why the relative price of healthcare and education has risen uh, in the United States is because of more government involvement in some than in the other. I think the government involvement is a reflection of what would otherwise be uh, the, prohibit the prohibitively uh, 
high prices uh, that that are taking place. You look at private higher education, private higher education has risen in price comparably with uh, uh, comparably with public uh, higher education. So I suspect you and I could relate to a similar decentralization, put more emphasis on incentives, um, allow market forces to operate more strongly agenda in health and education. And I don't think you and I would disagree very much, but I think we would, uh, but I think we would conclude that however we worked all that out for any given set of values, the government was going to have to be larger uh, than it had been uh, 20 years ago. If you had sufficiently small government values, you might think it was too large now, but you should be adjusting in a certain direction. Um, I'm great to hear, if not even see, um, my old friend uh, Bill Galston, yes, on uh, infrastructure. Uh, it can't make sense that we have potholes unrepaired to the point where the costs imposed on the average motorist correspond to 75 cents a gallon. It can't make sense to have so many major of our major uh, airports uh, look uh, like uh, they do. I doubt it makes sense for the United States not to have any company that can plausibly compete in stage of the art, state of the art uh, 5G broadband, which is a different kind of uh, infrastructure issue. I'll never forget uh, one of the most powerful memories I have of my time in government was when I was Secretary of the Treasury, I made it a practice to whenever I went to an American city, visit a school and give a talk. And I would talk about the importance of the new economy and the importance of financial education and so forth. And I went to a school in Oakland and I gave a talk, it was a pretty good talk. And uh, his teacher came up to me, she was probably 29. And she said, Secretary Summers, that was a really inspiring talk. Thank you very, very much. But just one thing, she pointed to the walls and she said, look, the paint is chipping off every wall in this classroom and in every other classroom. It's not chipping off the wall at McDonald's. It's not chipping off the wall at the hotel. It's not chipping off the, uh, it's not chipping uh, off the wall at the stores. The only place it's chipping off the wall is at this school. Why should any kid believe you when you say that there's nothing more important to the future of America than what happens in schools? If that's true, why is the school the only place where the paint is chipping off the walls? And I'm not that often at a loss for words, but she left me at a loss for words. So yes, I think we do need to be massively investing uh, in uh, infrastructure. I think that actually, Bill, 
is obvious. I think the hard questions are just what uh, infrastructure? Uh, is it old infrastructure? Is it old infrastructure or is it uh, new infrastructure? What's the role of the private sector in infrastructure investment? It's always struck me as really interesting and surprising. I'm never sure what to do with the observation. But in socialist Europe, all the airports are privately owned, roughly. And in capitalist America, all the airports are publicly owned. And so what's the role of the private sector in uh, infrastructure investment? Uh, seems to me to be a very, very uh, important uh, question. What is the role of equity versus debt? People who are for infrastructure, their, their bright idea tends to be that we should have a bank, an infrastructure bank. And I actually think the one thing that America is pretty good at is producing bonds for anything that's remotely bankable. And so I would put more emphasis on equity to support infrastructure and the kinds of infrastructure like fixing the potholes or uh, taking the lead out of the water in Flint for which there may not be a completely viable uh, revenue model. But God knows, as I've been saying for many years, the United States of America can produce 30-year debt in a currency we print ourselves paying an interest rate, locking in for 30 years of all of 1.2%. Surely, if we are concerned with what we pass on to my children or what I have them, my grandchildren's generation, surely a decent, repaired, functional, modern infrastructure not producing that is surely a greater burden on them than leaving behind 1% paying uh, bond. And so, yes, I think we should be massively investing uh, in uh, more uh, public infrastructure. And if some significant part of financing capital projects that will last for a hundred years is borrowing money. Yes, I think that's okay as well. You just heard Lawrence Summers talk about how so many economic trends have been accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. He sees our chief economic problem as excessive savings that have a difficulty being absorbed, except at inflated prices. And he sees a major change ahead for the economy as both individuals and companies focus more on resilience of systems and supply chains rather than just efficiency. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.